Morning. Hey, look at that. Morning, everybody. My name is Paul. I'm part of the preaching team here at Sutton Vineyard, and it is lovely to see all your smiling faces this morning. Although they may be heat grimaces by the end of the day. We'll see. Um, if this is your first morning with us, um, please know that you are very welcome. You know, actually, if, you, if you're an old hand and you've been here since forever, good morning to you too. Or if you're online or on the podcast, everyone's getting a look in this morning. Good morning. Now, we've been doing this series called Pivot. Thank you. Where we've been looking at people who've met Jesus and the life-changing impact that it had on them. And this morning is the last in the series. And so to bring things to a close, we're going to look at a pretty spectacular but fairly intense story that appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, John's off doing John things, which you know I love. But all the same, that what we're about to look at shows up in three of the four Gospels tells you it's significant. So what are we going to look at? Well, it's what happens with the demon-possessed man, Legion. Now, just in case you're taking notes and you want to read up on this later on, you can find this in Luke 8, 26 to 39, Matthew 8, 28 to 34, and Mark 5, 1 to 20. And I'll be, well, I do recommend reading all three um, accounts to build up a full picture. Now, I'm going to be hanging most of this morning off Mark's retelling. Uh, as it's the longest and it's the most detailed, and frankly, I'm one for the details, nerd that I am. But I will be pulling in bits and pieces from the other two, Matthew and Luke, along the way. Now, let me read the first part of the passage to you, then I'll pray. So Mark 5, starting at verse 1. This is from the ESV translation, in case it looks a little different to yours. They came to the other side of the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat... Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and, he begged, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Whoa. I mean, even if you know this story, whoa. Okay. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get going. Holy Spirit, I invite you into this morning. Father, I pray that as we have opened your word and we look at it together, that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say to us. Amen. So how are we going to tackle this? Mm. Well, exploring the Bible from different perspectives is something I love doing. Rather, rather like looking at a precious diamond from different angles. Same diamond, but you see different reflections, refractions, and colors, you know? And I hope to share something of that with you this morning. 
So we're going to look at what's going on, shifting through three different perspectives, or from three different vantage points, if you like. And the three different perspectives, they do overlap a little bit, but each perspective will, I think, expose some really important questions and choices we all face. The three perspectives, I've called them Jesus and his identity, Jesus and your identity, and pigs and pivoting. So let's get to it. The first part, the first perspective, if you will, is called Jesus and his identity. Now, just before this passage, Jesus has sailed across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. You may remember, uh, it's the bit where Jesus falls asleep in the back of the boat. A storm whips up and rages. The disciples panic. And Jesus, well, Jesus carries on snoozing in the back of the boat until they wake him. And much to their shock, he calms the storm by telling it to be quiet and still. Now, they arrive on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the land of the Gerasenes which is believed to have been a Gentile area. They were likely to be Greek rather than Jewish. So they therefore weren't going to be following the rituals and the laws that would have been observed in, say, Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus is stepping outside of the day-to-day -day area of the Jewish people, and the welcoming committee is a demon-possessed man. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, this demon-possessed man, we know from all three accounts, was in a state of torment. We don't know how he came to be in this state, but we know that he walked around naked, that he was violent towards everyone, including himself. He cut himself with stones, and he was often heard crying out that he was uncontainable. They tried to bind him, and nothing had worked. He'd broken free of all of these restraints. And we also know that he lived among the dead in the tombs. And if it were today... This man would be on every criminal charge imaginable. ABH, GBH, murder probably. The list would go on and on. He would doubtless have been making the national news headlines for his acts of depravity and the wanton acts of violence. Our society would have locked him up as best it could. Um, solitary confinement. Probably thrown away the key. Pathological case with no hope. That's where this man is. The state of this man his nakedness, his bloodiness and filth, his living among the dead would all be abhorrent to the Jewish people, people who are so dedicated to the ideals of ritual cleanliness spelt out in the Old Testament. This is like some kind of curated list of activities designed to cause maximum offense. And even just being around this man, aside from the real threat of violence, might make them worry about their own cleanliness in God's sight, guilty by association, if you like. We just need to understand this because spiritually speaking then, this man has, on account of his state and his actions, been separated from God, from the source of all that is good. He's living through hell on earth. The place, the very place, Jesus would willingly go when he went to the cross in our place. Now this man runs to meet Jesus, which is significant. As Pete pointed out in his talk on Zacchaeus some weeks back, Zacchaeus gets in Jesus' way. Blind Bartimaeus, who Jason mentioned a few weeks back, did similarly by shouting out to get Jesus' attention. Nathaniel, too, in his own way, you know, he just meets Jesus, gets in his way. Or the lady who suffered from bleeding and reached out for Jesus' cloak, if you remember that story. It comes just after this one in Mark as it happens. 
Most of the talks you've heard in this series generally had this aspect to them in some form. Getting in Jesus' way matters. And it turns out that if you do that, rather than hiding from him, pretty spectacular things can happen. This man, though, he reveals that he's been carrying this demonic horde, legion, they say, for we are many. A Roman legion, just so you know, would be four to 6,000 men, highly trained and lethal. Perhaps bravado on the demon's part to claim to be a legion, but the fact that they managed to kill 2,000 pigs in one go suggests not. But the demon-possessed man knows who Jesus is, son of the most high God. But he doesn't know him from the perspective of salvation, rather of judgment. Verse seven, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. The Bible is rather tight-lipped on many heavenly matters, that's true. But from Revelation 12, it certainly appears that Satan was an angel and that he rebelled against God. And in the process, he took a third of the angelic host with him. These fallen angels then, this legion, would be part of that faction. And therefore, they are aware that they await judgment for their rebellion. In Matthew 8.29, the corresponding part of Matthew that reports this moment in history, they ask, have you come here to torment us before the time? That time is the judgment at the end of history where we're told that God himself will judge the living and the dead. Now, let's talk about names for a second, because I don't know if you spotted it, but Jesus and his identity just got full named. Anyone who's been full named by someone, usually a teacher or a parent, knows the chilling depths of hearing their own name being used in full. Paul, Andrew, Lewis. <laughs> Just freaked myself out. Like, ah! Names we know have a certain power, don't they? And here it's no different. When many of us finish our prayers, before the amen, there's a little phrase we often drop. In Jesus' name. Legion appears to be full naming Jesus here, son of the most high God, but in a very different way to the, to the one at the end of our prayers. It's actually indicative of a spiritual power play to hold him to the legal contract of what he's allowed to do and when. It's effectively you, Jesus, son of the most high God, full naming, can't judge us yet. This isn't the appointed time. He even appeals to his father. In return, Jesus asks him his name, Legion. So you might think he'd say, Legion, I, Jesus, son of the most high God, command you to leave. Respond to a full naming with a full naming. Show them who's boss on their own terms. <laughs> no. As though this is some eternal struggle of two equally weighted opponents. It is not. From Matthew 8.32, we know that Jesus has one word for them. Go. Just to be clear about where the balance of power lies here, we know that Jesus knows the name you could use, Legion. He just doesn't need it. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says that when Jesus returns to wrap up history, he will bring about the end of Satan by the breath of his mouth. Whew. I wonder then, do we have a right view of who Jesus is and the balance of power in this life? He's the son of the most high God. 
And second, for us, do we choose to get up close to him? Do we get in his way? Or do we keep our distance? Instead, choosing to listen to the voices of fear. What will happen if I do? Or pride. What will everybody think of me? Or doubt. Is he really the son of the most high God? Can he really help me? Now, I know I routinely struggle with this one, with pride in particular. Not wanting to appear like I've got issues. <laughs> As though God and the rest of you don't already know. <laughs> A friend of mine used to tell of his grandmother, um, <laughs> who, like all of us, would get sick. And uh, they'd suggest to her that she should go and see the doctor, as you do. And she'd respond by saying, I'm not going to the doctor looking like this. I'll wait until I'm better, and then I'll go and see him. <laughs> the time to go and see the doctor is, of course, when you need help. And the time to get in Jesus' way, whatever you're facing, is always right now. We say, get in harm's way, don't we? It's a phrase we use. Well, this is the exact opposite because from experience, I can tell you that what awaits us when we do get in Jesus' way, in God's way, is love. Perfect love. Safest pair of hands in the universe. Second perspective. Jesus and your identity. So I want us to see something else here. And for that, we're going to need to change perspective. Like I said, Jesus has crossed over to the land of the Gerasenes and he's now in Gentile territory, if you like, outside the day-to-day -day area of the Jewish people, outside the expected boundary of God's people, if you like, spiritually speaking. Now, there's a venerable line of thinking that the storm that whipped up when Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee was spiritual opposition, an attempt, if you like, to keep Jesus in his lane and keep him contained. I like the fact that he slept through it, but that's by the by. The fact is, he's not welcome here. This is enemy territory, spiritually speaking. So now we can frame this whole moment differently. And I think this shows us something incredibly important about Jesus, what he does, and what he offers. On this reading, you could say that Jesus passes through the storm into enemy territory to redeem the irredeemable. Let me say it again. Jesus passes through the storm into enemy territory to redeem the irredeemable. That is what Jesus does. That is who he is. He leaves the 99 to find the one. And often it's the one that others have shunned and consigned to the garbage. The one who's broken, lost, and forgotten. This is very much like the cross where Jesus literally went through the storm of death and hell to redeem the irredeemable us. No matter how bad a situation is, no matter how bad a person appears to be, they are never too far gone for Jesus. This man was so far out the other side of acceptable. It's hard for us to grasp the depravity and the brokenness. And yet, as we'll see later on, the Bible tells us that when others come to see for themselves what Jesus has done, they find this man in his right mind. That's what the Bible says. Restored, whole, complete with an identity and a mission. Let me read the next part of the passage to you. The herdsmen fled, I think I might have been with them, and told it in the city and the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man 
the one who'd had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. I think I probably would be too. That is a major change in this man. The unfixable just got fixed by Jesus. I sometimes wonder what Jesus and this man discussed between legion leaving him and everyone else arriving. So how have you been? Well, a bit rough. I mean, what will be left to discuss, you know? Maybe could we get this man something to wear? And I mean, what did the disciples make of it? Especially after the storm, this is big stuff. This man has been made whole by Jesus right in front of everyone's eyes, dramatically ridden of the things that bound and tormented him. But now we need to ask, why? No doubt Jesus had compassion on him. His pain was evident. But if we only see this as redemption of something physical, solving his practical problems, if you like, we miss the depth of what's happening here and the implications for us today. It's important to see that Jesus is not in the business of solving people's practical problems on demand, as though from there, free from distractions, we can get on with living life as we fancy. We were made for so much more than that. Jesus is in the business of returning people to their right minds like this man, and that means returning people to something deeper, their true identity. That's a greater gift than solving someone's problems. Now, what is this identity then, and what does it mean? Well, let's turn it on its head a bit and look at it the other way on. I've noticed, and perhaps you have too, that we can be rather quick to take on labels. Here's some random ones. I'm a sporty person. I'm not, but you might be. Or I'm creative, I'm a musician, I'm an artist, I'm a parent, I'm a linguist, I'm an INTJ, I'm religious. I'm sure you get the idea. Not that these things are necessarily bad, they're not. But when those labels are stripped from us, as life will so often do, often swiftly and without warning, we get disorientated and distressed. Because we allow those labels to be identity forming and we don't know how to live without them. Instead, I want to suggest to you this morning, there is just one identity you need to live out of. It's the one that Jesus alone offers, and the one that won't be revoked or removed. It is to be a child of God. You can add to that, of course, but in a loose way. I am a child of God who happens to play the bass. I am a child of God who happens to do various other things, work at a company, and you can fill in the gaps for yourself. Now, I'm not saying that's how you introduce yourself at parties. Hi, who are you? I'm a child of God. <laughs> Again, these additional things that we add, they're not bad, and they do inform something of who we are, but we need to resist their influence as being core to our identity. Do you see the difference? I hope so. It's one of alignment. It's what we live out of. It's how we view ourselves when everything else is gone. And I wonder, without this man's all-consuming state of demon, demon, being demon-possessed, who is he? He's met Jesus. He's been restored. He has a new identity gifted to him by Jesus, out of which he will now live. More on that one later. Now, while we may not share this man's issues, those of us who've met Jesus and call ourselves Christians nonetheless do face a question how do we live out of this gifted identity of being a child of God? Now, I don't know if you remember the phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do? 
It was around for a while, and then it was roundly mocked and quietly dropped. <laughs> and perhaps that was warranted because it became horrendously cheesy and trite. But part of me thinks it's sad, little part. Because observing Jesus and his actions in the world simply is the way we learn to live this life as a child of God, full of grace, love, dignity, integrity, confidence, and wisdom. Jesus is the prototype, the original, the best, the benchmark, the yardstick, the way, the truth, and the life. If you ever find yourself wondering what it means to live as a child of God without all the extra gubbins, make time to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look, I know it sounds very obvious and very Sunday school, but this time it really is the right answer. We need to reflect deeply on who Jesus is and his life, and we need to model ourselves on that with the Holy Spirit's help. And we need to surround ourselves with others who are determined, determined to do the same. That's why small groups are so important, because we get to walk with other people who are going to do that. And if everything goes well, they will help you detect the part of your identity or life that should never have been, and they will work with you. Because you might not see it yourself. Now, I've said it before, and I'm going to say it again. Don't go it alone. We weren't designed for that. So if you're not in a group, join one. If you are in a group, come along. <laughs> I'm in a small group, are you? Um, So let me ask you, who are you? Or really, who are you? How do you think of yourself? What's at the core of your identity? Is there any part of your identity that needs to go? Okay, really weird thing. Quite a few folks asked me when I was preaching next and what I'd be talking about. Legion, I said. Now, I'm no conspiracy theorist. But I think they had some collective scheme going on because literally every single one of them went, ooh, the pigs. And I'm like, okay, the pigs. Turns out the pigs are significant. So we'll talk about them. Finally then, perspective three, pigs and pivoting. On leaving the man, the demons enter 2,000 pigs in a nearby herd on Jesus' permission. And these pigs then rush to the sea and drown. And it's natural to ask, why? What's going on here? Was it necessary? Couldn't Jesus have just sent the demons out without doing this? Well, first, I think it wise to remind ourselves that creation is God's to begin with and his to do with as he sees fit. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. God can have morally sufficient reasons for his actions for which he owes us no explanation whatsoever. He alone is God. But nevertheless, we can and we should ask our questions. The Bible is full of people asking God what's going on and why. The Psalms in particular and the disciples with Jesus. It is definitely part of the journey. So we should note that first that there's nothing here saying that Jesus is aloof and unfazed by this decision. We don't know. In fact, he may well have lamented it, but seen it as necessary all the same. Verse 13. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
we should look carefully to see if we can understand more of this dynamic and what's going on. Because this was extremely costly and significant for Jesus to do. There are, in fact, two things that the pigs show us, I think. First, the state of the man. The attack he was under was sufficient to kill 2,000 pigs. Jesus is demonstrating to those around, and by extension us, the depths of hellish torment this man was in, and how unwaveringly bent on malevolence and destruction Satan is. Second, it shows us the state of the people and their values. So here again, we'll change perspective slightly. If you're not aware, it's perhaps worth knowing that pigs were considered unclean in Jewish life. They wouldn't be kept, they wouldn't be eaten, they were an animal to keep somewhat distant. So why do these people have pigs? Because they were Greek rather than Jewish. They were largely Gentiles. And they wouldn't be living according to the Old Testament covenant recorded by Moses where pigs were declared unclean. Pigs were these people's livelihood. And it was their source of stability. 2,000 pigs is not exactly a small herd, is it? And so our equivalent of this enormous wealth is our jobs, our homes, our relationships, our identities, the things that we value and which provide us with significance. Jesus is forcing a hard choice here. Do they want him, even if it's costly? Let's look at verse 16 and 17. And those who'd seen it, the healing, described to them, the people of the surrounding area, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The fact is, their their response to what Jesus had done tells us they would rather have a demon-possessed man in, in their midst than keep their pigs than have Jesus. They would accept extraordinary malevolence and destruction if only they get to keep everything else they hold dear. They'd rather have that than Jesus because he's already cost them a lot. And it seems they didn't want to know what else it might cost to have him around. So they didn't want Jesus. Not at that cost, but of course the man did. He's now in his right mind. He knows who he is and he knows who Jesus is and he wants to follow Jesus no matter the cost. As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis (laughs) how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Side note, did you notice that in the end, Jesus ended up here for just this one man? After he's dealt with him, he gets back in the boat and he leaves the area. He sailed through the storm into enemy territory to redeem the irredeemable. This one man was worth it. Fun fact, so are you. Jesus has a role for this man and his restored identity to tell his story of God's mercy in this Gentile area, to become a missionary effectively, and wow, does he. The Decapolis, as the Deca bit implies, is 10 cities in the surrounding area. Our man's on a full-on sold-out tour. I'm going, I'm at every city, that's me. I love that this man is told to tell his friends and instead he quite literally tells everyone. And I also love the swap we see here from Lord to Jesus. Did you notice that one too? Tell them how much the Lord has done for you 
And he proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. The Bible is being very clear who Jesus is, and I think the man knows too. He's Lord. And so this is the pivot. The man clearly sees who Jesus is, son of the Most High God. But this time, it's not from a position of judgment, but rather redemption, identity, and freedom. That is his pivot, and he cannot help but share it. So what about us then? Hmm? Let me ask you a very odd question. And if you're brave, it's perhaps a question you can allow others to ask you regularly. What are your pigs? To be clear, we all have our pigs, and often they're the things we quietly want to keep. What if Jesus wants to deal with that thing? What are the things you're holding on to where it feels too costly to let go? Resentment? Guilt? Something around a relationship? Do you trust that if God wants to deal with something, it's because he loves you and he wants you to have freedom and to be near your true identity? Earlier in the year, I took a trip to the north with my wife, Heather, and our two kids to see my family. And every time I've been there since leaving for uni, I've struggled whenever I've returned. For me, there is so much pain associated with it as a place. It's where I had quite a few traumatic experiences growing up. This time, however, I ended up on a slightly bizarre road trip with the kids. Driving around all the houses that I'd lived at in the area, which turned out was quite a few, Heather was sorting a few bits and pieces, so she wasn't there. I showed them all the places I'd lived, and I explained to them some of the family history and what had happened at each of these places, sometimes good, sometimes tragic. I realized that I was holding on to a lot of hurt, and it was still part of my identity in a very unhealthy and unhelpful way. These were some of my pigs. Yet in the process of explaining it to the kids in an age-appropriate way, the Holy Spirit and I were doing some restorative work. It was like I was also explaining it to a younger version of myself somehow. And I was able to start letting go. And when we left the North, Heather said to me that she noticed that I'd come away from this trip differently. This was the first time I'd been there and not come away sad or even angry, but accepting of my past. That is what I'm talking about. I'd held this pain and anger, and the Holy Spirit was intensely interested in my freedom from that. If the worship team wants to come back, I'll start bringing this into land. Doors to automatic in cross-check, cam crew seats for landing. <laughs> for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, Christians, we need to see that we don't just pivot once, job done, and then live a life just waiting for eternity. You were created for so much more than that. You were created for freedom. And freedom is often a process. Sometimes we have to turn away from things that harm ourselves or others. The things that we let get in the way of our relationship with God, painful as that can be. The word we use for that, it's one that's centuries old, is repentance. Occasionally it's big things. Often they're small things, and we don't do it alone. We do it together, 
And we do it with the Holy Spirit. God loves you. And he's intensely interested and invested in your freedom and identity. That one man was worth it. And so are you. What are the things you're holding on to? What are your pigs? Will you let them go? The time to get, time to get out of harm's way and into Jesus' way, whatever you're facing, is always right now. He has identity and freedom for you. To walk with him is a life full of pivots. You have to choose that too. Keep moving. Keep praying. Keep pivoting.